0: Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. Listen now for the word of the Lord. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced all along with his entire household that he believed in God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning uh, I also want to wish everyone a happy Mother's Day and uh, um, looking for somebody's not okay never mind um, sorry uh, let's um, begin with our uh, weekly review uh, for those of you who are new to our service uh, we're working through the New City Catechism, and so uh, we begin the service uh, by way of review. So beginning with question number 20, who is the redeemer? <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I've been told that this is being put on a podcast, so that um, question, there's a, the mic's not picking up the response, um, so you know, you got to say it like really loud, like you know it, so that the mics pick it up, okay? So, let's try that again. Who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. 21. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? one who is truly human and also truly God. Question 24. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? To deliver us from sin and bring us back to God. 25. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? 26. What else does Christ's death redeem? Every part of fallen creation. 27. Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? No, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. 28. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? They will be cast out. And today's question 29, how can we be saved? And the full answer is only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. So even though we are guilty of having disobeyed God and are still inclined to all evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ when we repent and believe in him. Uh, I invite you to memorize all that if you like, um, but we are just going to memorize those uh, five words, only by faith in Christ. How can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. Did it, can I see that real quick? Okay, it should say Jesus Christ. Sorry, my bad. It's, uh, only by faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Right. Um Let's pray. Lord, we have seen um, what it is to be separated uh, from you eternally. And so we want to ask today how can we be saved? And to think through what it means that salvation comes through faith and only by faith, only by faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to know what that means. And how to live that out um, in our living. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 16 contains a series of incidents in the city of Philippi. Um, which results, as you heard in the scripture reading today, with Paul and Silas in jail. The reason that they are in jail, which we didn't read, is that Paul had become very annoyed by this uh, spirit, this python spirit in this slave girl, and had cast it out of her. And in doing that, Paul and Silas had ruined this very lucrative business, this psychic network, this fortune-telling scam. And so the masters dragged Paul and Silas to the town. They bring them before the authorities. And without mentioning their, their just sheer greed, Um, They accuse Paul and Silas instead of disturbing the peace of the city and for spreading and advocating these unlawful customs. And they throw in some anti-Semitism to get the crowd on their side. In our modern day and in our all too familiar terms, I think, we could say that Paul and Silas are victims of police brutality illegally tortured and wrongly incarcerated by authorities influenced by a mob for disrupting a shady business that abused its worker for profit based on racially charged, trumped-up charges of religious anti-patriotism. That's what's going on. I think it's important for us to remember that the gospel speaks to our economic practices as well as our politics and as consequences in the marketplace in the halls of power as well as in places of worship. Then, as now, when it comes to crime and punishment, you know that it's not simply a matter of objective and fair laws, that those who get arrested, charged, and punished, it's not a simple matter of justice, but often a matter of who has access to resources and who don't. We cannot forget that many people, like Paul and Silas, continue to be wrongly persecuted, arrested, and imprisoned, and that we stand with them and must stand with them because we serve a God who was falsely arrested, charged, tried, and sentenced to death. Hebrews 13.3 reminds us, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body to remember those who are in prison as if we are with them because we are a part of them it was especially important to care for prisoners in the first century because they were much more brutal than prisons in our country today they were not provided with meals or with blankets or with toiletries or anything like that there was no effort to ease their stay in any way And Paul and Silas have been placed in the inner rooms of the prison for maximum security. They would be crammed in there with many other prisoners in a very small space. And at night they would probably move all the prisoners to make it even more crowded for ease of guarding. Their many wounds would not be cared for. The air would be stuffy and the stench, as you might imagine, would be unbearable. They would likely have collars around their necks. And they had stocks that are mentioned here on their feet. The the stocks were these these large pieces of wood with holes for the feet, spaced as far apart as possible to make the prisoner as uncomfortable as possible. And their feet were probably also chained to uh, prevent further um, escape. And this, remember, it was after all the other beatings that they had received, they were, the, the authority stripped Paul and uh, Silas, further humiliating them, and they were beaten with rods. So all of that, and then they're thrown into this uh, stockade. On top of all of that, the jailers in this time were reputed to be very, very cruel, Philo, a first-century philosopher, wrote about them. He said, Everyone knows well how jailers are filled with inhumanity and savagery. For by nature they are unmerciful, and by practice they are trained daily toward fierceness as to become wild beasts. Now, we don't know if this particular jailer fits that description, and perhaps this kind of sadistic reputation is an exaggeration, but there's no reason to think that this jailer was different from any other jailer and that he cared in any way about the well-being of his prisoners. So it's this, in this terrible, terrible situation, what would you do? You'd probably call your lawyer. Maybe you'd complain to the warden, maybe whine to your fellow prisoners. Paul and Silas hold a midnight prayer and praise meeting. It's really hard to believe. And the tense of the verb here suggests that they had been praying and singing for a while. They're praising God in prison after receiving all this violence on their bodies. It's hard to believe. It's hard to fathom. Yet this is the disposition, the attitude that is possible for those who are in Christ. They are able to pray and sing even in the most difficult situations They are in chains but among all the prisoners they're the most free they are more free than those who put them in there and I love the way Luke says that the other prisoners were listening to them um, maybe because they couldn't believe that they were singing and praying but also because they're all in chains and you know you have no choice but to listen And so while they're singing and praying, perhaps asking God for deliverance and earthquake hits and, you know, you think, oh, this is going from, you know, bad to worse. But actually, this earthquake turns out to be divine intervention. It opens the doors and releases their shackles. And so you've got to be thinking, this is this is God telling me to get out of here. Earthquakes are not uncommon in this region, I'm told, but it's all about the timing of it. You can imagine for the other prisoners, you know, they, they hear them singing and praying and maybe asking God for deliverance. And all of a sudden an earthquake hits and all their shackles, you know, break open, the doors fly open, right? I and mean, that's, that's got to be a frightening thing. It's got to be, you know, for, the, for pagans who think that, you know, God is about to visit them with wrath uh, because earthquakes are seen as a kind of a sign uh, of anger uh, by the gods and so on. And just in awe of what's going on with this prayer that Paul and Silas and the singing. And at that moment, the jailer wakes up. He sees that the prisoner doors have been opened. And he assumes that the prisoners had just all run away and decides to kill himself. That may sound rash to us, but we know from Roman law, and if you look in chapter 12 of Acts jailers were responsible for the prisoners. And if the prisoners escaped, the jailers paid for it with their lives. That's what happens in Acts 12. And so, typically, jailers were um, city employees. They were typically slaves owned by the city. And so, because they were slaves and not citizens, they could be crucified. And so, the jailer, assuming that the other prisoners had escaped, knows that his life is forfeit, And maybe he just wants to avoid the cross and decides to take his life because he knows his life is is gone anyway. Maybe he's afraid some of the prisoners are going to grab him and, and torture him as probably he had tortured them. Whatever reason, he's about to commit suicide when Paul tells him, don't do that. We're all here. No one has run away. And you know... I. I thought about, you know, why Paul would do that and thinking about if there's some deeper reason for that. And, and I think the simple reason might be because Paul and Silas were, were too beat up to run away. I mean, they'd just been brutalized, bleeding, wounded. Um, so maybe they were trying to escape, but maybe they were, like, moving real slow, and, you know, because they're, they're, so, they're in so much pain. And as they're doing that, they, they see this man, and he's about to, you know, kill him, you know, Fall on a sword or something, and so he realizes what's going on, and tells the other person, "Just wait a sec," and tells the jailer, "Don't do that. We're all here." I was really thankful this week for the Wednesday word that Jenny wrote, in which she shared about some of her struggles in in college, and I know we're coming to the end of the academic year, and reminded me, you know, of my own struggles when I was in school. Now, now I know that there are at least a couple of you here who never had any difficulty in schools never had any academic challenges so I know there are a couple of you here okay but the rest of us uh, you know we we struggled in schools or we had times of struggle Um, some of us flunked a class or two and and so on and um, you know it's it's a tough time some of you might be struggling with school right now just just to finish Um, maybe you're struggling at work, uh, with a boss, uh, or maybe you're having difficulties with your spouse or or with your kids. Um, It can be difficult. It can be disappointing. It can even be disastrous. But maybe those moments, maybe that difficulty that you're going through, (laughs) behold, (laughs) Um, maybe, That situation is an opportunity that God is giving you not only to grow, but to help someone that might need a word from you at that moment. We don't know all the ways that God is working behind the scenes in our lives and in the life of Paul and Silas, but it seems here that God allowed Paul and Silas to get beaten up unjustly and thrown in jail just to save the life of this jailer and his family, right? If Paul and Silas were not in jail when the earthquake struck, probably the other prisoners would have ran away, and the jailer would have had to lose his life. Maybe some of the suffering you are undergoing now, perhaps unjustly, is so that you can bear witness to someone in your life. Maybe that's how and why God is working in your life right now. That's how God often does work. You know, we, we, I know we want to present a kind of a shiny and successful Christian faith, life, religion. You know, we want to be the successful people. But the gospel usually comes from a position of weakness. Not, not an earthly power, but from a position of vulnerability and weakness and a strength that comes from humility and empathy of having suffered. And that's what the jailer discovers. He brings more light to see if what Paul says is actually true, and realizing that it is that they stayed for his sake, for his life, he falls down trembling and asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Or as the catechism asks today, how can we saved now for us to be saved carries the idea of salvation of eternal life but the word save doesn't require all of these spiritual and eternal significance that we attach to the word even when Jesus used the word save he sometimes only meant uh, saved in the in the very narrowest of sense For example, when he said, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. He only meant your faith has healed you. He's not talking about your faith has uh, saved you for eternal life. I mean, he might mean that, but in in many cases, he'll just say, your faith has healed you, meaning it has uh, saved you, meaning it has healed you. Right? So to be saved simply meant to be rescued or delivered from whatever trouble you might be in. You know, maybe it's, you know, you have gambling debts, or you have an addiction, or you, you have some illness, and, and you get saved from that, you get delivered from that, you're, you're rescued, and that's what it means. So I don't think the jailer is asking the deeper question. He's probably a pagan, a Roman uh, slave, so I, I don't think he's thinking about, you know, heaven and hell and, and the, the eternal things. Uh, Bishop Stephen Neal even suggested that we translate his question, gentlemen, Please tell me how I can get out of this mess. Uh, Gentleman makes it sound a little too British for my tastes. um, But the rest of it is, is, is good. It's good. He knows he's in trouble. He knows his life is a mess. The fact that he's about to kill himself over this reveals to him the depth of the messiness of his life. And so he's wise enough or desperate enough or perhaps thankful enough to ask for help. And sometimes, you know, that's, it, it, that's what it takes. It takes for people to get to a point where, where they're just, there's nothing else, right? They have to hit rock bottom, total desperation, before they really seek out help that, that I need saving to come to that realization. And the jailer has come to that point. So whatever he may have in mind, Paul and Silas answer the deeper question behind it by saying, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. How can we save, the catechism asks, only by faith in Jesus Christ. I need to do a little word study here, because I was for a long time confused. Because in English, we use the word believe and the word faith differently. Um, but in the Bible, in the Greek, the word believe and the word faith, it's, it's one word. And so we, I wish there was a way we could translate the word believe and the word faith as one word, right? Because typically we use the word believe as a verb, like I believe something. And we always talk about faith as a noun, as this thing that we're supposed to possess, to have faith in Christ or something like that. But again, but in Greek, it's, it's, it doesn't work that way. It's one word and it's one idea. So I wish there was a way for us to say, um, we can't do this in English, but to say, I believe Jesus, to be able to say, I faith Jesus. Not I faith in Jesus or I have faith in Jesus, but I faith in Jesus, meaning I believe Jesus. Because that's the way the, the Greek... Works in terms of what it is to have faith or to believe. Um, because faith, as a noun, it's, it's not something that is to be possessed, right? This, this object out there that we have to get a, a hold of. That's not what it is. Um, and so when we think of faith that way and belief as this thing that we do, that there's a kind of false separation that happens between what faith might be and how we are to respond in faith by believing, right? So, and the other problem, of course, is we use the word believe so loosely that it, it's not what the Bible talks about, right? We talk about believe as, as an opinion, right? I, I, believe, um, I believe the Cavaliers are going to beat the Celtics today, right? It's just, it's, it's just an opinion. It's a vague notion of what might happen, but that's not the way the word faithing Or believing is in the Bible it's it's much narrower and stronger than that so um, when we use the word believe in English you know it it carries no cost to say I believe something because it it doesn't require anything on my part there's no you know there's no penalty for me if what I believe isn't true you know I believe in Bigfoot Who, who cares Right? There's no, there's no repercussions to my life. By the way, I don't believe in Bigfoot, but I'm just, that was, that was an example. Um, so, um, the way the Bible talks about faith and faithing, or belief and believing, um, all this, it's really one word, um, requires a commitment to a way of not just thinking, but a way of being and, and acting. And so I want to try to get at that a little bit. And so I was thinking uh, we should just get rid of the words belief and faith in the Bibles. But that's a little too strong. <laughs> I'm not bold enough to make that go that far. But I do want to suggest that we think about using a synonym that I think works better than those words. And that's the word trust. And this has been very helpful for me in thinking about faith. Because the word trust can work as a verb and as a noun, right? Grammatically, it works well. And, and the meaning of the word, I think it, it, it has both the sense of believe and faith that I think is very helpful uh, for us, right? Um, because to trust someone or something, when we say I trust Jesus rather than I believe Jesus, it's not just I believe some facts or statements about who Jesus is. When we say I trust Jesus, it means that I'm, I'm willing to place my life in his hands. There's, there's a level of commitment that the word trust has, that the Greek faith has, that we don't always get in the English, I believe something. And so we can say I trust Jesus only by trusting Jesus Christ. That I say only by faith. Not, not something that I, that's outside of me. But who I am, this, this trust that I have, not just in Jesus, but I trust Jesus. Are you with me? So, so I like this word a lot better. That we talk about trusting Jesus. Rather than, you know, believing or having faith in Jesus. That we trust Jesus. And only by trust in Jesus Christ. And there are two things that come with this. So the catechism says that we are saved only by Faith, or only by trust. In other words, nothing else will save you. It's only this this faith or this trust. Not your goodness, not all the charity work that you might do, not your generosity to, you know, humanitarian causes, not the sincerity or the earnestness of your beliefs. Nothing. Not the church you belong to. Nothing else except trust. And Jesus Christ will save you. There's so many passages in the Bible, but Ephesians 2, 8 is very representative. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not of anything you can possibly do. And so no one has a right to boast about it because it is purely by gift. And secondly, we're saved only by trust in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ, it requires a trust, and it requires a trust in this particular person. Uh, we've already worked through the Catechism, and for many of us, we talked about how Jesus is the only true Redeemer, and that he died for us, and that it's his death and his death alone that brings us forgiveness and makes us at one with God and leads to eternal life. Jesus himself said, John fourteen six, I am the way, and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father Except through me. He alone is the one that has to be trusted. The Apostle Peter preached in Acts 4. There is no there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven which is given to us by which we must be saved. There's only one. And Paul writes in Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We are saved by trust and only by trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. Now the jailer um, hears this, that he has to believe or he has to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, An answer that was deeper and probably more than what he expected And upon hearing this word, and then Paul goes on to explain what that means, because he says, and and they told him the word of the Lord. He hears, and then he responds to that. Look what he does. He washes their wounds. He gets baptized. He brings them into his house. He gives them food. And he rejoices along with the rest of his family. I mean, this is a very unusual set of actions and potentially dangerous. Jailers could be punished for taking it easy on the prisoners. And Paul and Silas, they're in maximum security. And so for him to treat them this way could lead to problems with his job. But he's so moved by their compassion for his life, for their mercy, and having heard the good news, he's eager to alleviate their suffering by washing their wounds and extending hospitality with welcome, and with food. And now he and his entire family enter into this community of faith. They they identify along with Paul and Silas as Christians through the waters of baptism. And now they've really put themselves in danger with the authorities. But best of all, the entire family experiences great joy. He goes from suicidal thoughts to leaping joy. That's... The power of the gospel. I just want to share one a final thought with you today. You know, the jailer, I think some of us might be jealous of him because he experienced this incredible, dramatic conversion experience that led to his trust in Jesus, right? I mean, he, he witnessed something miraculous. It's a great story. You know that at church meetings for the rest of his life, people are going to want him to share his testimony and people are just going to just, just love it. He's got this great story. But what about his family? I've been thinking about his family this week. You know, when they hear his testimony, and, and they're going to be grateful that he's alive. At the very least, the gospel saved this family from losing a father, from a hus- losing a husband. They're glad that he was rescued. But beyond that, I wonder what they thought. Because they weren't there in the jail when all this happened. They didn't hear Paul and Silas singing all night. They didn't see the timing of the earthquake as they were praying. They didn't experience personally the kind of hopeless terror that the jailer experienced, followed immediately by this this miraculous salvation and hope that the words of we're still here brought to his heart. This jailer father-husband tells you what happened, and you kind of just have to trust that what he's telling you is true. You could be skeptical and say, well, you know, it's just a coincidence, I and mean, we get earthquakes here all the time, and it wasn't that big a deal. You got lucky, right? Maybe you're saying, oh, you know, maybe you're just exaggerating, you know, it and wasn't, it wasn't so bad. I mean, you weren't really thinking about, you know, hurting yourself. The family didn't get to experience the miracle firsthand. They, they have to trust that word. But here's what they do get and what we get. They got to hear the gospel firsthand from Paul and Silas. And, and they saw the evidence of that miracle in the life of the jailer. And that's what we get to. Right? We weren't there when Jesus performed his miracles. We didn't get to see him rise from the tomb. We don't get that. What we get is the testimony that we can trust. We get to hear the gospel firsthand, like the family did. And, hopefully, we get to see the demonstration of that miracle in the lives of other Christians. And that's also our responsibility, that we have to demonstrate that new life because we've experienced that miracle to the people around us. I imagine they were shocked by the jailer's actions.? Right? Dad never brings home prisoners to, you know. What's he doing? He's the maximum security of these guys. and He's washing these criminals' wounds. Why would dad do that? Why would my husband invite these, these Jews to fellowship with us? You know, we, we don't eat with Jews. They're hard to believe, but I think that's what moved them. To see him act with compassion and in a way of extending fellowship that they had never experienced before. And I think the clincher was the joy. It wasn't just like, oh, i got to wash these. It, it was the joy in his life that they saw. And that's what led the rest of the household to get baptized and be a part of all of this. We're in the same situation. We don't have, a most of us, I know some of you do, but most of us don't have a dramatic story of conversion like this jailer. But we have heard the gospel firsthand and we have seen the demonstration of that miracle in the lives of others. And that's also our call. We can show compassion, healing and caring for the wounds of others. We can extend hospitality, inviting others to meals and to fellowship. We can join one another in the waters of baptism and in the communion table, in worship, as we identify ourselves together in the body of Christ. And best of all, and most important of all, perhaps, we can demonstrate the joy in the Lord. We can demonstrate the joy in the Lord Maybe even the kind of joy that leads to prayer and singing in circumstances like prison. Those are things that we can all do right now. You know, the jailer went back to work the next day. He didn't change jobs or ask for a transfer. He didn't join Paul and Silas on the rest of their missionary journeys. He didn't leave his family to join a monastery in the desert to get more spiritual. The circumstances of his life have not changed one iota. It's exactly the same. But his relationship to his family, his relationship to those who are in prison, his relationship to God, who maybe he didn't even know about, that's all radically changed. And so has the family's thoughts about all of that as well. That's what faith is, that's what trust Jesus is and does. It's not just like, I believe Jesus, meaning, okay, I believe Jesus, you know, it's part of the Trinity, and he was born of Mary. Like, that's not believe. That's not trust. That's not what the jailer, that's not what Paul meant, be, meant when he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It meant trust him. I mean, trust him. Not, not just in your head, but to, to, to give your life over in such a way That that it just just bleeds out in the way you treat other people. That's faith. That's faith. Not a set of beliefs. And, you know, this is really how, how and why the church survived and spread in the early centuries. You know, scholars argue and debate about, like, how is it that, you know, this small little nothing group of disciples with no training no education, no money. How, how is it possible that in, in three, four centuries they completely dominated uh, the empire? And scholars will point to different things. They'll say things like, well, there's, there was uh, relative peace, the Pax Romana, the Romans built these great roads so that missionaries could travel back and forth easily. Uh, there were synagogues in all the big cities, and there, so they had places where they could go and, and worship and preach and all of that. Um, but really, the thing that made it possible for Christianity to spread and to survive was the witness of the average believer empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's it. It was the witness of everyday people, like this jailer, right? He doesn't have anything special. He's just, just working a job in the jails. But he experienced compassion from Christians. And then he extended that compassion to others. That's, that's, that's the only marker we have. The only genuine marker we have as Christians, as believers, as those who trust Jesus, is that we have love. That's it. There's nothing spiritual or religious going on here in, in that sense. Christians were seen, you know, as these weird people, like, they, you know, they... they There were rumors that they got together and they they ate each other because you know they would talk about drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. They thought Christians were weird, but as weird as they were, they also had to admit, man, but they they take care of each other. They care about the sick and the poor. And that's what intrigued their neighbors and ultimately won them over to the faith. And we have the same opportunity, we have the same spirit. You know, may, you know, I hope your neighbors think you're weird for going to church every week. Like, instead of doing whatever it is that they do, that you're, you make this long drive to go to church and listen to me, you know, like, why do you do that? That's weird, right? It is. If you think about it, what you're doing right now, this is weird. It's a waste of time. It really is, by any sort of, you know, worldly standards. Why do you do that? It's weird. But can they also see, as weird as that is, can they also see that you care about them, that you love them? Can they see that? I really don't think it's very complicated. And really the only marker we really need to have is love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples if you have love. That's it. Not if you pray more. Not if you go to church more. Right? I mean, we want to do those things. They're good things to do. And, and it helps us to love. It gives us motivation and, and encourages us. But it's this act of compassion that the jailer did. That's what it is. Isn't there someone in your life right now whose wounds you might be able to help heal? Isn't there someone who's having some pain in their life that you can maybe help alleviate just a little bit? Someone who's hurting? Someone maybe who's lonely and could use an invitation to your home? Isn't there someone who could use a meal that you cook for them? Someone who just needs a little laughter and joy that you could invite and make possible? Let's trust Jesus, and let's do that. Let's pray together. Lord, um, it's so simple. You made it so simple for us. How can we be saved? You made it as simple as possible. You ask us simply to trust you. No strings attached. Nothing. Complicated. Even the youngest of children can understand. Trust me, you tell us. So, God, help us to do that. Help us to really trust you and let that trust just ooze out of our being, every moment of our living. Let that trust be demonstrated in the way we live, in the way we love. God, help us to really trust you. To really trust you. So that others too may see the joy of what it is to trust. And so come to saving faith in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to invite you to the Lord's table. This is the table that Christ himself has prepared. And we are reminded that one day people will come from the east and the west the north and the south and we'll all sit together in joy in the presence of the Lord. And so in his name I want to invite you to this table. And remind you that on the Night of his arrest, our Lord Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this also in remembrance of me. For as long as we eat this bread, and drink this cup we proclaim once again